asking Sarah to stay on in Quint's cottage. And of course, there was the box. For she had sworn to herself that she would move nowhere till she had tackled the box. By the time the year had turned past the vernal equinox, and the churchyard was alight with daffodils, Sarah had begun to wonder how she was ever going to leave. For the box remained lurking under the far reaches of the stairs, an invisible but expressive presence of something palpably untackled. Aside from the perpetual reproach of the box, life in the cottage was simple and sustaining. It was furnished with Edwardian furniture that Clovisa Jenkins had apparently inherited from an aunt. Upstairs was an arts and crafts bed with a formidably hard mattress. Such a comfortable bed, Clarissa had assured. A matching chest of drawers, a marble-topped dressing table, and a large roll-top cast-iron bath. The bath stood regally in the bedroom, defying anyone to judge it an unnecessary use of space. On the shelf that ran beside it, Clarissa Jenkins had ranged green glass bottles of an earlier era, and Sarah had provided flowers for one of these several jugs from the workshops of the many esteemed potters with whom her landlady had apparently conducted affairs. She had conveyed this information with a pride that left Sarah uncertain whether it was the number of the affairs or the aesthetic judgment shown by her choice of lovers that fueled it. It was after an early bath, when she'd gone downstairs in her dressing gown to make tea, that she first saw the man. Or rather, his feet, because the line of the window was only a little higher than the level of the graveyard ground. The brown shoes were standing by Charles Blakely of this parish. And on seeing them, she felt something like indignation. No one, to her knowledge, had approached Charles Blakely since her tenure had begun. She had unconsciously grown proprietorial about his last retiring place. Then, with the freedom that living alone brings, one of its compensations, she laughed aloud at her silliness. She spent the day wondering whether it was time to open the unbroached box. By 6pm, she had contrived to avoid a decision and poured herself a large drink while she watched the news. The cottage was equipped with both a TV and a DVD player, luxuries that she'd been used to doing without since Philip had disapproved of them. There was something reassuring about the six o'clock news. The violence and prevailing gloom were palliatives to a savage breast. Tomorrow I will do it, she said aloud, pouring another glass of wine. Tomorrow, I'll be brave. The next day she woke to rain and went into Stratford on the pretext of looking at houses. Not any house in particular, more a kind of prowl around to see if she could live there. Stratford had many virtues, the river, the theatre, and, of course, Shakespeare. She and Philip had rowed about Shakespeare and she had thrown a copy of The Tempest at him. You're an absurd snob, she had declared. That 
cloth-eared Earl of Oxford could never have written so sublimely. But today Stratford was wet and filled with tourists. If Shakespeare had lived and died there, his spirit was sensibly not abroad. That night the rain cleared, and she was wakened by blue moonlight pooling onto the old elm floorboards. It was so bright that it summoned her to sit upright, and then pulled her out of bed. Across a sky still ragged with rain clouds, the moon was speeding, its lopsided disc conveying a look of manic madness. A night bird peeped, and something moved below. A cat, mousing, sliding through the uncut grass. All cats are grey in the dark. If she stood at the window longer, she might see an owl. She nursed a hankering for an owl, born of the occasion.